All right, so today on this episode of Root Docs, which is a mini-series dedicated exclusively to the discussion of root diseases, our guest today is Dr. Maria Tomaso peterson Professor Emeritus at Mississippi State University. And today we're going to spend some time talking about a disease that I think Maria is somewhat familiar with, and that is... Uh, take all root rot and Bermuda grass decline. So Maria, thank you for being on today's show. Well, Jesse, thank you for inviting me and um, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, this, this is really exciting to me for a couple of reasons. It's so, you know, when I left the University of Tennessee, I was somewhat in tune with what you all were doing you know, with these Bermuda grasses. And, and then, you know, I needed a job after graduate school, moved to Chicago. And then after that, I moved to Canada. And now I'm back in the Southeast. And I kept on reading all of the work you, you all of you have done with some of these diseases. And it is really, really in, in impressive. And my first question to you, you know, for, for me is, you know, we hear take all root rot and then we hear Bermuda, gra Bermuda grass decline. Are those the same thing or are those different? Well, that's a really good question. Um, and I like to go back to the beginning. And the beginning in 1984, the disease was characterized in a experiment station bulletin in Florida. And it was... Um, called Bermuda grass decline, but the symptoms they described were circular patches of chlorotic Bermuda grass um, appearing late in the summer. And um, then in 91, 90-91, Monica Elliott characterized Bermuda grass decline, the disease, and um, identified the causal agent as Gamanomyces graminus graminus. Then, as she continued to work with that fungus in warm season grasses, they found the same pathogen, Gamanomyces graminus graminus, or GGG is what we called it, um, infecting St. Augustine grass, causing chlorotic patches, and she called that take-all root rot. And mm -hmm. then those warm season grasses that weren't a Bermuda grass green were referred to those that disease was referred to take all root rot and then in the well in the early 2000s i was doing diagnostics and i identified um these chlorotic patches in the spring of the year on bermuda grass greens champion ultra dwarfs and um it was loaded with the pathogen GGG, and um, I, I referred to it as GGG patch because when I was coming through the literature and learning about this disease, the decline was more found on the edge of the greens. It looked like it was worn out and it just kind of faded. The turf faded and lost density and it wasn't so much circular patches. Yeah. And then... Um, Okay, let's see, about maybe 10 years later, or it was in the late 20-teens, 
Jim Kern started to see this patch disease on their ultra dwarf Bermuda grasses, and it was just blowing up in the Carolinas. And he called it and referred to it as take all root rot. And um, so we've kind of just gone back and forth and kind of just melded the name. It's a synonymous name now. And mm -hmm. um, in the compendium, it's referred to as Bermuda grass decline, but it also says, you know, this disease can also be known as take-all root rot. So I think the take-all root rot is probably taking hold and it um, better describes the disease and what's happening yeah. to the root system than um, like decline. It it's, doesn't really have to be a pathogenic um, you know, problem when we see different decline type names for diseases. So I think in the future, it'll pretty much be referred to as take all root rot or T-A-R-R -R as the abbreviation. Yeah. Would be. Yeah. yeah. Cause it, you know, you think about, you know, this, this train of, you know, you mentioned St. Augustine gets it and, you know, all the work being done on some of these new zoysia grasses being, you know, built for, for putting greens. Now it would be kind of odd to call, you know, on a zoysia green, oh, that's Bermuda grass decline on, right. on, on zoysia. Yeah, yeah. So and and so on 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 say Bermuda grass. So it, it the symptoms of this doesn't have to be that kind of patch structure that that we see, you know, in the you know kind of take all root rod in late summer fall. But you're seeing this pathogen cause that kind of general thinning and more diffuse symptoms as Correct. well. Yes, and in the Deep South, my experience and through diagnostics, it was more of that thinning, declining that you would see, and it usually started around the edge of the green where the cleanup layer um, in mowing would occur, and that's just more reduction in plant height, and, um, you know, it's this, those thinning out symptoms are associated with low mowing height. And um, yeah. so, you know, that's what I was more accustomed to seeing. And, um, but now in our area and in the deep south, they're starting to see a lot of those patches develop in the fall. And then as the grass greens up in the spring, those are the weakened areas. So they look patchy too so yeah yeah and you know reading some some of your work you know it was, it was referenced you, you just mentioned elliot and you know what what they found or what they suspected is is that there's multiple pathogens likely present and it's almost like take all root route almost like a general term kind of like snow mold where there's multiple pathogens that could be causing very similar symptoms. Correct. It, how many have you guys identified as, you know, being in that complex that are causing those kind of take all root rot or Bermuda grass decline symptoms? In our research, um, my student Philip Vines did that work. And um, we actually, he actually identified I think it was six species that were mm -hmm. not Gamanomyces graminus that um, when we did the phylogenetics, they didn't match anybody. 
but through the pathogenicity tests, um, we concentrated on those that showed pathogenicity to the roots. And um, through that, we've identified three species that were pathogenic. One was a new genus species, Candida clonium cynodontis. And then there was a Magnaporthiopsis species, which was kind of interesting because it used to be called Magnaporthy. And um, <clears throat> back in the day, Magnaporthopoe was um, the summer patch uh, fungus. And um, I was like, why is there Magnaporthy species on this warm season grass? So that was like in the early 2000s when I just started tinkering with it through diagnostics, I would see um, a lot of the gross cessation structures on some roots. And I didn't really associate that with the Gamanomyces species more so than the Magnaporthy species. And then I started to see different shaped hyphopodia, not just simple in the deeply lobed, but different size lobed hyphopodia, some that were more kind of mitten shaped, but and I was like, why are these hyphopodia different? Is it the age of the, the fungus when it's infecting and I'm seeing it? Or what's yeah. the deal? So, yeah. you know, I put all those questions on the back burner until the mid-20-teens, like 2012 is when Philip came in. And we talked about maybe, let's see what these are and who they are. You know, the phylogenetics and the molecular yeah. work was getting so much better and back in the early days, I took a lot of these ectotrophic root infecting fungi that I didn't think was Gamanomyces graminus graminus. <clears throat> and back in the day when I did um, ITS blasts, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I'd get like 96% identity to Magnaporthy poe. And I'm like, well, who mm -hmm. is this fungus then, you know? And what's it doing on the warm season yeah. grass? Who are you and what are you doing here? So I was, you know, through his excellent work, we were finally able to, you know, um, go into that black hole of these ERI pathogens and find out exactly who is there. And Elliot and Lanscoot, you know, discussed there's a complex and so we were finally able to, you know, solve that riddle and identify um, these fungi. And then over in North Carolina, Jim Kern's student, Cameron Stevens, he found um, and identified, which was already identified, Gamanomyces graminicola, which we never mm -hmm. found in our work, which I thought was interesting because you know, we had hundreds of samples and um, putting green samples from Hawaii all the way through the deep south and everywhere. Yeah. And so I was like, well, why didn't we come across Graminicola? You know, that's just kind of interesting. And um, which Cameron showed was highly pathogenic. So um, and then we would do samples and we would find multiple uh, species on these rotted roots together. So, mm -hmm. you know, that was pretty interesting. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I could imagine. And, you know, you, you got the craziest thing is, is that 
they're somewhat related in their behavior, but from a taxonomy perspective, um, they're not even in the same genus. Like you mentioned a couple of these that aren't even, and so these are very different organisms, which, you know, thinking as a superintendent, you, you tend to think, okay, I got one disease caused by this pathogen, and I know what this pathogen is very sensitive to, say from a fungicide perspective. Correct. But that takes a lot of work because now, now you have to almost go back to the drawing board and think, okay, we've identified, I mean, the very different organisms all infecting these stolons and roots at the same time. Right. And how are they different? Do they vary in fungicide sensitivity? Do they slightly vary in, in temperature? And because you've also found that too, differences in fungicide sensitivity across these various modes of action. Correct. Yes. And, um, and different temperatures as well. We, we did temperature studies as well as Cameron. And I thought it was really cool that you know, NC State was doing research with these fungi, and they were finding the um, Magnaporthiopsis cynodontis and Candida clonium cynodontis as well. And then there's um, Gamanomyces nanograminus, a new species. So they were finding all of the species we were finding as well as their Graminicola. And um, different temperature, um, optimal temperatures, and they responded differently to uh, fungicide uh, modes of action. So it made me start thinking as we worked with spring dead spot and found that there were different species and we knew that in the beginning, but the work that was done at NC State by Lane Treadway when he was still there with fertilizers, um, it's almost like the work is going to have to continue with these fungi to see in greens, okay, who's the predominant species? Because there might be a predominant species. And um, also, you know, our, is the reaction to the fungicide different or can we kind of do a blanket applications and see positive results with the fungicides? Yeah. And and last night, I want to show this because uh, last night I was, I was doing some kind of background reading on the, this subject. And you know, there, there's always a, you know, some people, you know, there's no such thing. You've spent some time under a, a, a diagnostic microscope. There's really no such thing as a sterile root zone sample that you can just about find. <laughs> so I'm actually going to share my screen. And this is clipped from... I think the thesis from um, Tucker that 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 he did. Okay. And I want to see if I can find where that screen is. Right, right here. I found this hilarious. So this this is from um, the I believe the 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 master's thesis where you guys sampled the crap out of, you know, some yeah. of these greens. This is, so this is an outline of a putting green that was sampled in two consecutive years. And you can just see how many sampling points, you know, credit to him, that is a ton of work. It was <laughs> fascinating. There was only one tiny sample in both years that you guys weren't able to detect 
one of the take all root rot pathogens present. Is, is that a kind of a good way to interpret this? Well, what <clears throat> we saw was the dynamic change from year to year on who was colonizing those roots. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and yeah, those, those plots were small in, you know, you know, 2.4 meter area. Um, yep. and the fact that the colonization was not consistent from year to year just goes to show you, you know, the, the, the diversity that's out there and yep. the, the, the vigor of those fungi in that root system. And, you know, each year those roots kind of slough off. And so there's a new flush of root and it's like, okay, whoever's there from one year to the next gets to get on those roots and colonize yep. whether they do damage or not, they're still there. And um, this research that um, Aaron Tucker did was just, it was outstanding and it just kind of blew my mind to the point where, how do you wrap your head around this kind of stuff, you know, to make it um, into a publication that kind of makes sense. And if I was a superintendent, I'd kind of be intimidated and afraid at what we found on this, yeah. you know, putting green out at our MSU golf course. So that stuff is going on. Give credit to the superintendents that they have grass and it's growing in the presence of these fungi because, um, you know, it is type uh, a stress-related disease in that if there's any kind of a physiological stress, I think the pathogen's going to get the upper hand. But by maintaining that healthy turf, you know, you can you can sample all you want and you're going to find these fungi day in and day out on healthy plants mm -hmm. you know but it tells you you know be sure to keep them healthy because the the um the chance of those roots declining to the point where that grass can't recover and generate more root system to support it it's very fragile yep yeah, so it, it's everywhere, and then in some cases you got all four of these pathogens present, you know, in in, in that that same sample or, or on the same root or, or same rhizome. That that has to be troubling, and and then as as you said, something happens to where you, so you get this infection, and then it seems like there's this latency period or delay of when you actually see the symptoms and we think it's or you guys think it's plant stress related that some it's getting colder the days are getting shorter and then all of a sudden it gets flipped and then we start seeing those symptoms yeah that weakened turf yep yep so that would make it challenging as a superintendent to chase this down from a curative perspective as far as, so I got these symptoms and let's just pretend it's say mid-September, October, you got these symptoms, that this would be very hard to, to chase down from a curative perspective because you're gonna need the plant to grow out of all of those symptoms during a time when the plant may not be growing that fast to begin with. Absolutely. and. 
you know, we see that with mini ring as well. And um, so it's just like with spring dead spot, you have to kind of map those areas. Um, mm -hmm. If it's the entire green or areas within that green and know where those um, affected areas are. And then that next growing season, you have to be on top of it. And, um, you know, main, uh, stay in tune with the soil temperatures and, you know, get your fungicides out according to those soil temperatures. And that's another thing um, Cameron Stevens did a great job on. And I know Jim Kearns is continuing to do management using timing and um, relating it to soil temperatures. So, you know, I think there's good news coming and there's, he's identified fungicides that really help reduce that um, disease symptom expression. So I think there's hope for it, you know, and um, yeah. just be on the lookout for that. I did more of the biology of the fungi and not as much of the management with fungicides yep. in our work. So. And for soil temperatures, you know, based on, you know, you're working in, in what they've done at NC State, uh, soil temperatures, it, when would you, if I, if I'm a superintendent somewhere in the Southeast managing ultra dwarf grass putting greens, what do you think would be kind of that, that preventative, when that preventative application time frame as far as what soil temperatures do you think you would look at and what range of soil temperatures would you pull the trigger on a fungicide application i would um look at the soil temperatures when they um, start getting into the 80 degree fahrenheit 80 to 86 degree fahrenheit which um is similar to when bermuda grass roots are growing and yeah. um you know, target those areas. And in Mississippi, we kind of got the soil temperatures and then went across the growing season. And we were in March, or not March, but um, May. Yep. And so for our area, the Deep South, you might target May. As you go into the Carolinas, you might, you know, target mid-May, you know, depending on mm -hmm. where you're located. In Texas, you know, they'll start probably in um, April uh, with those yeah. warmer temperatures, the end of April. So um, that's kind of a good target. And so many of our fungicide applications now are kind of associated with soil temperatures, which yes. the superintendents are getting used to looking at soil temperatures and not at calendar date because, yeah. you know, our crazy weather you know, for large patch, you could be putting out fungicide for your spring application, you know, in March instead of April or May down yes. here. Yep. So, um, so I think they're getting, you know, used to looking at the soil temperatures. And I think that's a, a good key is to look at, okay, my first application should be in the 80s to low 80s. And it also will help protect that root that's being developed and starting to, to grow. And, mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, follow-up applications on a, I don't know what's recommended, maybe 21-day, 28-day yeah. uh, repeat application. 
And then at what temperature do you think you're safe? So let's, let's just pretend, okay, we're hitting that 80, 80 degree mark in, in May. What is the lower end of that spectrum, do you think, where, okay, the soil temperatures have dropped to this point, I can breathe a small sigh of relief. What range do you think that would be? Well, we saw um, fungi cease growth at like in the low 60s, you know, for these particular fungi. And it's interesting because then the um, the take all fungi that affect cool season grasses, well, they're growing at 65. But our warm season fungi, they kind of cease growth in that 65 degrees. So I'd say below 70, they're going to start slowing down and just hanging out and not being um, infective like they would at their warmer temperatures. Yep. That that makes sense. Yeah. For me, I was was reading the um, compendium, which you were a co-author of of this. and what what was I kind of just staying on on this compendium for a second? What was that like being involved in that publication? Which in the industry we kind of call that the the Bible, so to speak, of turf pathology. It's one resource that I know for me it is usually right next to me or in my backpack when I'm when I'm traveling. Absolutely, um, I use that book as my um, course book um, for my class turf grass diseases but to work on it it was it was very um, it was fun for me and the way I approached it is I just went back to the beginning and did research on you know the first mention of this disease or any of the diseases I worked with and then went through and looked at the fungi that were associated with it and from our third edition to the fourth edition so many of the the taxonomy you know had advanced to the point where a lot of the fungi were called different Mm -hmm. names and so it was kind of fun to go back and just you know clear a path and write about the progression of the disease and bring it up to date it was very satisfying and for me it was kind of the end of my career and um, so it was kind of like a capstone for me to, to you know, yeah. work on this and um, put in a lot of information on warm season grasses that the other compendia lacked previously. Yeah. So we're pretty excited about it. The editors, you know, when we finished, we were like, man, this is, it's good for yeah, yeah. at it's least 10, 15 a- years. <laughs> It's such a good resource, and I definitely see a lot of the southern diseases uh, yeah. definitely bulked up in this version. If you haven't gotten that that new compendium, I would, especially if you're managing ultra dwarfs in, in the south. My next question, just out of my own curiosity, you know, take all root rot, Bermudagrass decline is one of the big diseases of ultra dwarf Bermudagrass putting greens. So is miniring. Have you ever seen symptoms of miniering and symptoms of take-all root rot on the same grain at the same time? I have not. That's a yeah, good question, I, but I have not. I, I have not either, because 
I was reading, you know, some of the cultural management strategies, and Joe Roberts talks about this at all uh, quite a bit when he's talking about mini-ring, is if if you have mini-ring, do not put ammonium sulfate out. Correct. You, you don't want to put ammonium sulfate out. But it, for one of the cultural management practices for managing take-all root rot, it says to apply ammonium sulfate because that can help reduce... That it's almost like a damned if you do, damned if you don't. So I'm going to put down ammonium sulfate to help limit my take-all root rot. But I wonder if then that is that open the door for miniering to, to come on in. Well, that's interesting because it's almost opposite. The cultural practices for the um, take-all root rot decline, you know, cultivation, core aerification. I've seen greens um, where in the thinning aspect of that disease where they core aerified, the only place that they had grass was in those little cores, you know? Mm -hmm. But for many ring, any aggressive and like continual cultivation of aerification, um, top dressing a little deep, you know, promotes that disease. So you are in a catch 22 and um, again, I think it goes to proper fertility management in the beginning with um, sound, you know, cultural practices um, and, you know, preventative fungicides and get them out there. So, and, and so, you know, you know, you know, talking about, you know, putting it all together, you know, you know, take all root rot, mini ring, you got to, for a superintendent, you know, who say used to be managing bent is now, you know, switched over to Bermuda grasses. Man, these Bermuda grasses have a lot going on. And, and, and what you're saying, Maria, is Bermuda grasses absolutely do get disease. They are not just these uh, immune grasses. Yeah. It's not the old uh, 328. <laughs> yeah. At a quarter inch anymore, and uh, absolutely, um, they're high maintenance, high disease maintenance grasses, and we started seeing that early on in the um, the late '90s when people were starting to, you know, put out Ultra Dwarf a little bit more, and you know, they started planting that grass, and we really didn't know anything about it, mm -hmm. and. Um, my former major professor and boss, Jeff Kranz, you know, we would talk and he was like, there's so much we don't know about these grasses and mm -hmm. look at how much we learned about the thatch management where we didn't have that with the, the old ultra dwarfs. And so it opened up a whole new world and, um, and then the recovery is slower in, yes. in disease. Yep recovery and um i think you know that high maintenance high management um short mowing height just lends to more disease yeah yep and so. you know not to make this even more confusing for a superintendent you know who may be watching this so you got multiple pathogens causing take all take all root rot that they 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 form this kind of complex do you think the pathogens that that cause take all root rot symptoms 
are also potentially forming a complex with other pathogens of different diseases, such as a pythium species or perhaps a root knot nematode. Do you think they're all kind of tag teaming the plant and just kind of compounding the problem? Well, I think um, it's, um, you know, a cause and effect type thing with a compromised root system due to the take-all pathogens, um, you know, and the pythium's always there. Mm -hmm. And we know that pythium and the nematodes are somewhat associated and are found together a lot. And, um, you know, that whole microbiome of pathogens affecting that root system you know, just, I think weekends opens the door for other pathogens and, mm -hmm. you know, it could be a cascade effect, but it shows what great management our superintendents are doing on these grasses, because for the most part, their greens are, you know, looking good and um, satisfactory. And so, you know, it's, it's high stress. Yeah. Doing disease management. And then you've got the foliar diseases you've got to worry about, too. Yeah. It, I'm actually going to finish up, even though, you know, this is root docs, to, which is discussing, you know, root pathogens. It, and you mentioned when you were you know, looking at all these ectotrophic um, runner hyphae and, and all these different pathogens causing, you know, take all root rot, that they weren't exactly looking the same. The hypophodia is a little different. Mm -hmm. That curiosity got to you when it came to discovering another new pathogen that your lab helped work on. And that is the pathogen that causes ink spot. Correct? Correct. What was that Correct. like from the first time you got a sample <laughs> and you're looking at it? And I'm just trying to imagine, you know, you're looking at a sample and you think, OK, I think this is a curvularia which could take sometimes less than 10 seconds to confirm under a scope. Mm -hmm. And that didn't happen with that one. So could you kind of walk through the, the birth of ink spot, uh, you know, if you will? Okay. Well, it was a Friday night <laughs> in the lab <laughs> and um, it was actually a 328 sample and it had foliar symptoms that, just didn't look like a dollar spot symptom and it didn't look like a bipolaris leaf spot symptom. And I was like, what in the world is this? So I immediately um, removed some of the um, infected tissue and we surfaced disinfest and I just put it on water auger. And um, I thought I'm gonna let it grow out over the weekend and see what's there. But in the meantime, when I was looking at the plant, I saw a lot of very black hyphae down kind of in the stem region of the canopy. Mm -hmm. And I didn't see any sporulation or, um, you know, sexual reproduction going on like you would if it was Curvularia lunata, mm -hmm. which, you know, sporulates profusely. And I didn't see any of that. And I thought, well, you know, this is pretty weird. So the next Monday I came back and there was this robust hyphae coming out and it was clear. 
and there was no sporulation, but within a day or two, it turned black. And I was like, what in the world is this? You know, I had no clue. And I had to report to the superintendent, there's a foliar disease, but I don't know what this is. I've never seen this before. And um, so that was in 2007. And 2016, we were finally able to publish um, after years of characterizing the fungus Mm -hmm. and figuring out you know, where this fungus belonged in a genus and it kept going into curvularia. And I thought, well, it's just not sporulating. And I'd put it on multiple nutrient augers and um, put it in light, UV light, no light, six Mm -hmm. months in the dark. And it just never sporulated. So the taxonomists, when we were publishing, they were very apprehensive because they said, well, it's curvularia and it's not you know, uh, sporulating. And, um, there was a, a book, um, the Atlas of turf grass diseases and it came out of Japan Mm -hmm. and there is a curvularia blight that they have a chapter of, and the pictures are exactly like the symptoms that we were seeing here. And we first, I first saw it in Texas and, um, and over the years, then I was seeing it on our research screens at Mississippi State, and I was very excited about that. But in this book, they the causal agents were curvularia lunata and several other sporulating curvularias. And then a little mention down below, and a sterile fungus was ah. associated with it. Yeah. And I was like, I've got the sterile fungus. And... Um, I showed that it's, you know, much more pathogenic than curvularia lunata and it, you know, produced the same, you know, symptoms. And so, I mean, it took a long time and, you know, trying to break through and, you know, show that, okay, this is a curvularia, but it's sterile. I don't know why it's sterile, but, you know, in some of the old writings of like, um, Dreschler, when he was characterizing the Helminthosporium fungi, he talked about some are just sterile. Yep. And, you know, you just have to accept it. And this unique fungus, which is highly pathogenic, and I think the most pathogenic curvularia in the group that are associated with um, diseases, our turf diseases, this is highly pathogenic and it causes some pretty major damage um, in the the foliar region of our greens. It's on fairways. It's on tee boxes. I haven't seen it in athletic fields or home lawns. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, shorter mode golf turf. And it likes a lot of water. I happened to visit Dr. Joe Roberts at, at his research station in, in Florence, and, and he is convinced he has it too. And that damage, I remember thinking, holy cow, this thing is aggressive. It, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me, you know, those listening to this, you know, it may have kind of skipped over in their minds. How much dedication that took on your end to keep, working on this thing it from the that that day you first saw this to the day it was published was almost 10 years 
that is a ton of work and ton of dedication. And, and that, yeah, I was pretty happy to see it in print. <laughs> and that dedication is why you are absolutely one of the best turf pathologists we have we've ever had. We're very grateful oh for all that you've done, and really appreciate you, so you being on this show. I um, mean, you can you can find this episode on our NVU website and on YouTube. So thanks, Maria, for for being on 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 the the, the Root Docs miniseries. This is awesome. Thank you so much, Jesse, for your invitation. I enjoyed it.